0: Hello and welcome to 10x9, 9, where nine people have up to ten minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10x9 Podcast. As the evenings draw in, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere, why not relax with the three amazing stories on this week's podcast.
1: Recovering in Derry with her and the children, I realised I could live here. I told her.
2: One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Powerful words, Daddy said. He didn't think those up just now.
3: In almost every picture, you're with a different girl. Carl had a lot of love to give. She said, uh, that's right, I said.
0: Prepare for true love, a trip to the moon and heartbreak at home. So, let's get on. Here's our first story. It comes from David Simpson, who told it in Derry on October 4th as part of the Spread the Word Literary Festival, when the theme was New Beginnings. Take it away, David.
1: I'd been single for about five years, restless after 14 years in London, ready for a change. Little did I know how big a change was coming. Working at the Family Planning Association just off Oxford Street as a training officer, I got to meet many of the trainers that ran our courses throughout the UK. One day, the team from Northern Ireland were in town, meeting in the manager's office. My office was next door. Hearing raised voices and laughter, I popped my head in. I can't say anyone stuck out, but it was my first sight of someone who was to become a part of my life a very important part of my life. A couple of months later, early autumn, I think, 1989, all the trainers went on a residential. One evening, I came into the bar, and the Northern Ireland team were sitting together making more noise than anyone else. I got a drink and sat down next to one of the trainers from Derry. She said her name was Tony. We got chatting. She had a boyish look about her, short hair, slim and intense. Quite quickly, she talked about Irish liberation. It was 1989. The war was still on. We were ten years away from the Good Friday Agreement. Caught up in her excitement and passion, I talked of the liberation work that I'd done over the years, gay liberation, men's liberation. We talked every evening have you ever been to Northern Ireland, she asked. I pulled out my credentials. Oh, I've been to Ross Lair, Wicklow, Ackill, but I've never been to the North. What, too scared? Clearly Tony meant business. Yes, I said. Next time you come, come to Derry. Several months later, I was booked to run a course in Belfast. I contacted Tony and she said I should come to Derry for the weekend. I agreed. The manager of the Belfast office drove me to Derry. I saw my first reinforced police station, wires sticking out like scaffolding, my first painted curbs, my first flags. Sitting in the office on Magazine Street, the door burst open and Tony came in. She walked up to me, and gave me a big, long hug. I was a bit taken aback. She was obviously pleased to see me. We drove to her house off Beechwood Avenue. I met her teenage children. She explained that we would go to her holiday home at Kinigo for the weekend. Kinigo was spectacular. Clear sight of the western isles of Scotland, a wild beach with a crash of waves, The smell of wood smoke from an open fire in the front room. We talked. I think we talked till three in the morning. At breakfast the next day, I knew something had changed. I told her. She said she felt it too. Tony said that if we felt the same way in a month's time, then she was happy for us to start a relationship. We talked on the phone during the month, and she came to London. We both felt the same. We started a long-distance relationship. Remember, it was 1990 by then. No Ryanair, no City of Derry Airport, Heathrow to Aldergrove, tubes and car rides. It got serious. We talked of living together. The children were at school in Derry, I had my job in London. We came to a kind of halt without realizing it. One Valentine's Day I was over in Derry and I told her I wanted to stop the relationship. Great timing, David. She was angry as you can imagine. She insisted we stay in touch by phone. I left not really knowing what could happen next. Every few weeks, I would ring her, and she would shout down the phone at me. I took it. After all, I'd broken it off. That summer, I was talking with friends that I'd not seen for a very long time, and I described Tony to them how she and I liked the same things. We worked in the same fields. We kind of fit together. I realized I'd made a terrible mistake. I rang her. Can we start again? Yes, she said, but it can't be a rehearsal. I understood what she was saying. Yes, I said, deciding there and then to honor my yes. And that yes has led me to a new life. Quite soon after the phone call, I got sick in London from work and stress. Tony was over for the weekend, saw that I was pretty ill, and said that I was to go back with her and to be sick in Derry. I rested for a fortnight, lying in bed, looking out over the bogside to the walls, the churches, the buildings of the wall city. Recovering in Derry with her and the children, I realized I could live here. I told her. We plotted me leaving my job. We packed up my flat. All my stuff was coming over in a his lorry. I remember sitting on the plane at Heathrow, trying to do a crossword puzzle. Tony leant in close and pointed out the window. There was a rainbow. I'm sure it was a completely explainable meteorological event, but it felt like a blessing. We lived firstly in Derry whilst the children were teenagers by then, had finished school and gone to university. Then we moved to her holiday home in Kinigo in 1995. One day, whilst walking on Kinego Beach, I watched her. And I realized, I could do this. It'd be good for us. I knew from how we had rehandled handled some of our problems that we could make it work. So I asked her to marry me. I didn't have a ring. I had two pieces of red cotton to tie around our fingers. Getting down on one knee next to her in the old armchair by the fire in the front room. Will you marry me? Do you think it's time? She replied. I held my nerve as she talked about timing and what it all meant. She talked for what felt like about half an hour. I kept myself in check by saying to myself, she's nervous. It's all right. She'll say yes. And she did. After I had to ask her again, but it was a yes. Tony had been married before and wasn't a churchgoer, so we got married in the Guildhall with her clothes bought in a rush from Austin's in the lunch break from the Bloody Sunday Talks at Pilot's Row. Rings from Whatnot, the antique shop on Bishop Street, reception at St. Columns Park House, on the waterside, honeymoon at Harveys Point, near Donegal Town. It's 33 years now since that first, what, too scared? This is not a Mills and Boone story. We've had our challenges and difficult times, but now I'm older, have dropped some of my own internal moaning and a good deal of victimhood we found a place where I'm kinder to her. She's less defensive. And we sit watching television or driving in the car, and it comes to me. Love you, I say as we trawl through the Netflix catalogue. You okay, I ask as we drive out of the Glen on our way to Merville. May I have the opportunity to love you for many years to come.
0: Thank you so much, David, you old softy. You would hardly know you weren't dairy-born and bred. But you did say Doherty's. Everybody knows it's Doherty's. Now that was a wee dairy joke, but you'll all know that from watching Dairy Girls. Thanks so much, David. What a gorgeous story. And it was David's first time at a live 10x9, but you can see and hear other stories from him told on Zoom, available on our YouTube channel. And if you think you can follow in David's footsteps, then get in touch through our website, that's 10by9.com. We are always looking for storytellers. Or contact us through our social media channels, that is Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Okay, on to our next story, and it was August in the black box, and the theme was Once When I Was Younger. You can Google Blue Peter if you're not familiar with it, but basically it was a British TV programme for children. You'll understand once you hear Jane Searle.
2: 1969. The men had landed on the moon. I could see the spaceship out of the corner of my eye from behind the living room curtains. My little sister and I had been stirred from sleep by the grown-ups so that we wouldn't miss the big moment in history. Huddled together nervously in our jammies, we struggled to make anything out on the snowy black and white screen. Turn it up, Molly, my daddy shouted. We need to hear what they're saying. Mummy twiddled the knob, and the fistling and the crackling went up a notch. The television was new. The last one had gone on fire the week before, (laughs) and my mother had had to have her wits about her when she hurled it out the window making sure to keep it away from the curtains. I stared out the window. Lights were on all down our street. TV in the middle of the night had got everybody out of bed. I looked up. I could see the moon high above us. It didn't look that far away. How can they be here and there at the same time? I asked my brother Clive. Shh! He snapped, Armstrong's climbing down the ladder. At 15, he was taking it all very seriously. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, the astronaut said, as he put his big boot down on the dusty surface. Powerful words, Daddy said, as he hunched near the screen, holding his mug of tea and watching intensely. He didn't think those up just now. He looked over at my sister, my little sister and me. His name is Neil Armstrong Girls. You won't forget that. He will always be famous for being the first man to walk on the moon. But how will he get back? I asked anxiously. Don't you be worrying your wee head about that, my mummy smiled. They know what they're doing. Now you two get off to bed or you won't be able to get up in the morning. I couldn't sleep. The TV was still on downstairs and I could hear talking from the grown-ups. Mummy had said not to worry about Mr Armstrong, but I did worry. I couldn't help it. Sometimes I thought that worry was the only thing that I did well. Tonight my head was full of exploding spaceships and TV men lost for words. I pulled a pillow over my head. Emma, my little sister, lay fast asleep beside me. Nothing ever seemed to trouble her like me. My mother often said, Jane, you're the worrier and she is just shy, but you will both grow out of it. I wasn't so sure. We shared a double bed. Dinky, the cat, had died under it a few months before. And I worried about sleeping above her last resting place. Daddy had actually buried her under the gooseberry bush in the garden, but I still felt her presence was under the bed. (laughs) I turned over, moving the pillow beneath my arm to separate me from her soul. That was the bit of you that was going to heaven or hell. Daddy said cats didn't go to either, so that meant her soul was definitely under the bed. (laughs) It was going to be a long night. The next morning, the men were still on the moon. Buzz, the other one who had a really cool name, had a walk around it too. My brother said they had better be careful not to lock themselves out of the spaceship. I hadn't thought about that. Surely one of the clever people back on Earth had made sure they both had a key in their spaceship. Stop winding the wee ones up, my mummy said. He's only joking, girls. Not a very funny joke for their families, I thought. Daddy turned the TV off, as it had been on all night and he didn't want it overheating again. (laughs) And we all went into the kitchen to have our breakfast. What plans have you got for today, girls? Mummy asked. Spaceships, I blurted out. That's nice, Mummy replied. I'll hunt you out a couple of old squeezy bottles from under the sink. She knew we watched Blue Peter. (laughs) Emma and I messed about all morning with coloured paper, glue and bits of kitchen foil. When we were done, Mummy set the two spaceships on the kitchen windowsill to dry. Mine had bits of red and orange crepe paper dangling below it so that it looked like flames coming from under the rocket. It was particularly clever, I thought. Don't let my fire get wet, I instructed Mummy. You're putting them a bit close to the taps, "'What if they get splashed?' "'Calm down, love,' she replied. "'There, I'll move yours well back from the sink.'" Emma and I were sent outside to play. It was sunny. "'Where do you think they are now?' I asked Emma, who was climbing onto the swing. "'Who?' she asked as she gathered speed, her long brown legs moving backwards and forwards. "'The spacemen," of course I snapped. "'The sun is out now.' So where is the moon? (laughs) I don't know, she answered, and it was obvious she didn't care. She was swinging really high. (laughs) You better not fall off, I cried. Mummy says your feet can't go higher than the coal shed. (laughs) She looked straight at me and kept on swinging. She was shy, but she was stubborn. I turned and stormed off to tell. The next day, I woke up to the sound of Daddy's radio on, on full blare in the bathroom. He always listened to the news when he was having a shave. The two astronauts have joined Michael Collins in the command and service module and will begin their preparations to head back to Earth, the newsreader said. Tomorrow is the date for splashdown. I lay in bed and began to worry about them never getting back and going round and round the world forever until they died, just (laughs) looking down at home. They had sent back a beautiful photograph of the earth. It looked just like a giant blue beach ball, splattered with sand, just hanging in the darkness. I bet they wish it was like a balloon and they were still attached to it with a string, I thought. When I got downstairs, Mummy was sitting in the kitchen with a mug of tea and a packet of ginger nuts. She was safety to me, like home in a game of rounders. Other mummies fussed about things like tidy kitchens and washing on the line by nine, but my mummy wasn't going to kill herself for anyone. At least, that's what she said. (laughs) Are you still worrying about the astronauts, she asked me. Honestly, my mother could read my mind. No, I lied. Fibber, she smiled and put her arm around me. Well, I'm more worrying about the splashdown. I mean, what if it takes the helicopter too long to get to them and the capsule sinks and they drown? Can you imagine almost making it to safety and then it all goes wrong? And what if their children are watching on TV and they see it all happen? My mother sighed and poured me a cup of tea. She added a good bit of milk and a spoonful of sugar. Handing it to me, she said, Jane, you would worry about the ducks going barefoot. It will all be fine, I am sure. And anyway, you can't take the world's worries on your shoulders. They are definitely not wide enough. Now drink your tea and settle yourself. The spacemen landed back on Earth the next day, 24th of July. And Daddy said it was just as well, because it was all everyone was talking about in town, and he was sick of it. They splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, close enough to USS Hornet to be able to be rescued quickly, and all was well. They emerged from the steps of the helicopter, looking thinner and scruffier than when they left, but smiling and waving and looking relieved. I was definitely relieved. I'm not saying it hasn't been interesting, my father said as he ate his dinner. It's just an awful long way to go for a day trip. (laughs) They were only on the moon for less than 24 hours. And let's face it, we have stuff to sort out in this planet before we go messing about on another one. Thank you.
0: Oh, Jane, that was fantastic. You were such a warrior. Thank you so much for that. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal if you like. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd be very grateful. Or, of course, just sit back and relax. Okay, on to our third and final story. It's a beautiful story which deals with a suicide, but there's nothing graphic or unpleasant. It comes from my own Padre Tuma.
3: Um, this is a story in the form of a letter to my friend, Kahl. Dear Cahill, So when I was 15 and you were 15, I started getting involved with religion, and you said that that was all grand and you'd wait before you got religious. You'd said you'd get religious when you were old, when you were 40. We were both in your parents' house, and you turned on that Pearl Jam album that we both loved and turned it up loud. I think we were making toast. It was a Saturday night, and that album was and remains a soundtrack for the dispossessed. You had your gruff parents and your bruises and your body from them, and I had mine and my parents and my bruises. And anyway, I'd found Jesus, and you'd found alcohol. I was in a prayer group, and you were in AA. (laughs) You'd be 46 now but you're stuck at 24. I was living in Australia when you died. I'd made the trip up to your house the night before I left for Australia, four miles in a wet winter's night, but the house was dark, so I walked home. And When I was living in Melbourne for those years, my parents always phoned on a Sunday night, and that August in 2000, my mother phoned on a Monday night, and I knew something must be wrong. Cahal's dead, Cahal's dead, Cahal's dead, she said. I saw it in the paper the other day, but I waited till I knew it was your Cahal, but it's him. He's dead. He hung himself in the garage. And then my mother started to talk about the weather. Holy God. You were dead. You had ended a lonely life in the place where we spent hours and hours and hours, and Mum was talking about the weather. You'd have loved that. You always thought my mother was bonkers. (laughs) I couldn't make it back for the funeral. I don't know if you know this, but the priest at your funeral said, Cahill in this life was a very holy boy who loved God. (laughs) Like hell, you'd have said, and we'd have laughed all the way to the fish and chip shop. And then I'd have started talking about hell, and you'd have said, shut up and pass the ketchup. I phoned a few people the night that mum told me that you were dead, Sinead and Martin. Truth be told, I'd always had a crush on Martin, and always knew that Sinead would be a friend for life. I suppose now is a good time to tell you that I'm gay. All those times when you invited me to come drinking with you so that I could pluck up the courage to kiss the girls, it wasn't because I didn't want to drink, it was because I did want to kiss Martin, but that wouldn't ever have been a good idea. You and me became friends, at least this is how I remember it, and you're not around to correct me, when I ran into the middle of a fight and pulled you out. You were 11, and so was I, and your best friends were turning you into a piece of raw and bleeding meat and I pulled you out, dragged you over to where I was standing by myself, and said, you can be my friend now. I think that must have been worse for you than being beaten up. <laughs> Confirmation that you were now the friend of the boy who ran the Mallory Towers fan club. <laughs> I remember walking home with you that day and telling you about this new band called Aha. And what an amazing song they had called Take On Me. I sang it for you the whole way through, making up the words when I didn't know them. And you said you clearly liked that song. And I knew you thought that I couldn't sing. But I also knew that you had absolutely no friends now, except me, so I didn't worry too much. (laughs) You never told me about the alcohol. I found that out (coughs) years later. I never told you about wanting to kiss Martin, but you probably knew that. Anyway, the night my mother phoned me, I didn't know what to do. I went into my room and cried. I was in a shared house, and my roommate, a fellow Neil, was in the room on the top bunk. And as I shook the room and my body with shock and grief, he was quiet. There was shock and grief, but actually, mostly, I was angry. And then I was guilty about feeling angry. I walked around for weeks calling you a dickhead. I don't think you'd mind, though. And you'd have said something like, yeah, but at least I'm not a homo. (laughs) You always had the best comebacks. Your funeral was huge, I'm told. Everybody was there. It was August. My mother was there and went up to your parents. And your dad, who I was convinced always hated me, said, Jesus, Padraig was one of our own. He died just a few months ago, but you know that. That's what you were too, Cahill, one of my own. I never asked you anything about yourself, really, nor you about me. But for a few years, we were like salt and pepper shakers, totally different, but always together. A few nights after you died, I didn't know what to do. I went walking in the city at nighttime. It was Melbourne. It was dark. A man came up to me and asked me if I wanted to hear about Jesus Christ, and I said, no, but he talked anyway. I walked away from him. And as I was walking toward Flinders Street train station, I saw a man in the middle of the road who looked distressed. I stopped to ask him if he wanted directions. And when he replied, it was clear that he was deaf. I owned a sign language dictionary and have a deaf auntie and had perused the dictionary for years. So I was delighted to practice my very limited knowledge. He told me in sign that he was French and had already arrived in Australia that day. I spelt I-R-I-S-H and he asked me how I knew sign language and I got lost in the spelling. He was looking for the train station and I said to come with me. So we walked. The lost, deaf Frenchman and me, and I stumbled through his fluent language. He was happy to have met someone who could speak a few words of sign, and I was delighted at the chance to help. He was pure charm. At one point, I was trying to say something in sign, and he laughed and did an imitation of my terrible signing. You'd have liked him. When we said goodbye at the train station, he grabbed both of my hands in his fluent hands, and I felt his warmth. He winked and walked away, and there was me full of grief, and you were dead, and there was that man wandering away waving. I think of him often when I think of you. I got the train home and then played the Aha song. Did you know that those lyrics make absolutely no sense whatsoever? (laughs) Morton Harkett may have been a bit of a looker, but he's no lyricist. (laughs) But anyway, I turned it off at the bit when he says, you're all the things I've got to remember. That made too much sense. Months later, I made it back to Ireland. It was like some awful pilgrimage. I walked up to your parents' place. Your mother showed me the shrine she'd set up to you. Pictures of you everywhere. I don't blame her. I've got plenty of pictures of you up too. In almost every picture, you're with a different girl. "Carl had a lot of love to give, she said. Uh, that's right, I said. <laughs> he had so much love to give that he couldn't contain himself to just one girlfriend, your mother said. He had so much love. Is that what you call it now, I wanted to say? I wanted to say, we called him Rampant. But instead, I said, he had a lot of love to give. A few nights later, I had a dream. And in the dream, we were in the car, and Pearl Jam were playing. And that song, Alive, where Eddie Vedder sings, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, over and over again, was on. And when I got out of the car in the dream, I turned back and looked at you and said, goodbye. And you said, what's this, a farewell? You're always a part of me, Cahal, Podrig.
0: Oh, Podrig, how sad and funny and touching that was. Thanks so much. By the way, Podrig has a new book out or coming out, depending where you are in the world. It's called Poetry Unbound 50 Poems to Open Your World. It's a tie-in with this podcast and it's a wonderful piece of work it would make a great christmas present just saying and that is it for this podcast you can keep in touch with us on twitter facebook and instagram also email and that is story at 10 by 9.com and also check out our website we have a few extra events coming up so keep an eye out for those and please if you can tell as many people as you can about the podcast Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen, including our amazing audiences and all our storytellers, but especially David Simpson, Jane Searle, and Padre Gutuma. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.